Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another beautiful episode of the I Hate the Antichrist podcast. We are joined here today by Asarchist. Buddy, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to, to have you on. Why don't you tell us and all the guests who the hell you are and what the hell you're doing here? Sure. Uh, I am Ace underscore Arcus from Twitter. I'm uh, an anarchist on Twitter. I just post um, just like anarchist philosophy, individualist stuff, um, things of that nature. Sometimes, you know, other more obscure philosophy and uh, history, stuff like that. Uh, I kind of just try to run the gamut as much as possible. And you, might, you can usually find me arguing with people on Twitter yep. who um, all day and night when I should not be. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Baiting more people into arguing all day and night, too. Yes. That's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's right. uh, thank you for hopping on. The subject today, the nature of the Antichrist today, would be uh, anti-collectivism, or rather, yes. more succinct focus on why the individual. Uh, such a great topic, right? Because, uh, you know, it, it, you kind of get this in, um, you know, when you talk about any type of political philosophy, Especially if you're coming at this from an anarchist perspective, you can easily, you know, you know how you can obviously see your previous environment much more clearly when you're outside of it, and you yeah, can see it uh, much better from a different perspective. I think it's like that, especially when you come to an, a consistent individualist position. Um, you're much able, you're much easier able to look and see how all the strife created from all these different philosophies um, sort of stemmed from collectivism, essentially. And um, collectivism is really the, um, and it, it's pernicious and evil in my view, because it, it ultimately, de it's dehumanizing in a literal sense, right? Yes. It literally takes, it's a site, it, it, what it does to the human psyche is it turns a human being who, you know, at least for them, for their own perspective, right? Human beings don't think that there's some cogs in a machine, but society, being in a society like that, that's how they're treated, right? You, you're, you grow up and your relation, your value as a human being is relational and dependent on how you interact into yes. the machine itself. You don't have any value for yourself. It's only how you react or how you interact with the machine, uh, whether that machine be some form of, you know, um, the, the state or whether it be other non-state types of collectivism like racism, you're, you're uh, reduced down to um, attributes of your person rather than you as a person yourself. It's a simultaneous uh, forgetting that the individual is the most granular point of self-contained control. That's right. And yes. it also destabilizes that position by breaking it down into its components, taking yep. all those components from all the individuals together and acting like it's exclusively the components that works. That's right. Yes. So so you made a really good point about the components, because, right? So you take these like... Um, uh, what would be considered like universals in the sense, right? Like all humans share some type of universal between each other in the sense that we have bodies and, you know, we, we tend to act in similar, not, not in the same ways, but similar ways in certain situations and, and things like that. And you take aspects of the person and you spread it out into, and you assume that, okay, well, all that's here are just the component are just components. And therefore if they're components, then they're interchangeable, right? If they're universal components, they can be interchanged, and it really just turns people into means for your ends. If you hold a position of, okay, we want to get from point A to point B. So all we need to do is just restructure these people. You know, even if that has horrible consequences for the people themselves, exactly. we just need to restructure them into some form or some, um, 
system that will get us from where we think we'll go from point A to point B. So it, it, it reduces the individual down to some mechanistic utility, um, essentially. And that, that, that's why it's so evil. And as you said, it's um, uh, like the, the starting point has to be the individual, right? Yes. Only the end. And, and when I say the individual, I don't mean just one person versus like all other people. I mean, I, I mean, all, you could take it as all individuals, right? But just before we talk about groups, we have to talk about the, the singular point, um, the, the reduction of the group. We have to talk about what forms the group in the first place. And this would be called like methodological individualism, Max, Max Weber's um, methodological individualism, where when we're talking about sociology, we have to look at what creates the group itself before we can address what the group is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the so one of the main questions I wanted to touch on here was, uh, and you already dropped some theory. Um, what uh, tends to be what was sort of your theory journey that you went on that that sort of molded you into the current individualist anarchist position that you take now? Yeah, so I would say I started as a conservative. I was never. I was never like a, a conserv like um, a traditional conservative in the way that you might conceive of those. I was all I always had like libertarian instincts, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, but that kind of led me to um, discovering libertarianism and getting really deep into like individualist philosophy themselves. I never, um, I never got so most libertarians have like an Ayn Rand phase. I never really had an Ayn Rand phase, but you know something over time that I began to really respect about Rand is. Um, the she really really loves the individual person (laughs) like she puts them onto a heroic level and i really respect that even if you know sometimes she might you might people might think she goes overboard i still appreciate that she does that that she pushes back to the degree that she does against uh, collectivism but um you know going back to your question after that you know i found um rothbard and other libertarians and also just other philosophers in general uh, that would approach like an economic and you know economists like the Austrian economists I think are actually very helpful in this regard. Um, I, I think all of that together kind of turned changed the way I think about things, and it's like um, when you think about collectives and groups, right? You have to you have to start from a point. In my view, this is the correct like approach or the correct starting point to take is that you have to um, assume that okay. Before we can talk about what a group is or what a collective is, we always have to break down what the primary, um, what is the, how far, like, how far can you reduce something without, um, like, losing the um, um, the, the system itself, the essence of it. Thank you. Yes. So, like, how far can you reduce something without reducing the essence? And it seems to me that groups don't have essences in themselves, right? They're... Um, emergent they're emergent phenomenon from smaller units so that's the key word yes absolutely right so groups do not have identities in themselves right this is not um most people and and here's the thing right most people it 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 makes sense why most people categorize things because as human beings we categorize things because it just it it compresses information and it makes it easier for us to uh, like go through the world while compressing this information yes (laughs) <laughs> yes. So, so it, it, on one given to Adam, so. right. <laughs> so on one hand, it um, um, it helps us, but it also hurts us because we can over categorize to the point where we like get lost in metaphors sometimes. Yes. 
You know what a I lot mean? Of Where... Eastern philosophy focuses on that too. Yes, yes, it does. Yeah. A lot of so, Lao Tzu and the uh, Tao Te Ching oh, yeah. focuses on how assigning names to things may reduce what you can divine from them, what you can yes. figure out from them. Like right, right. Um, yes. Figuring that uh, herbivores are exclusively herbivorous when you can find <laughs> videos of deer and cattle and other usually considered obligate herbivores eating meat picking uh birds out of nests um you can find cattle chewing on other cattle's bones in the woods like like in like natural cattle in the fields yeah you can find that it's and if if you stick to this sort of hyper identitarian uh viewpoint that is just purely focused on the identity and the the collective idea of a thing you lose so much of that individual soul Yes. And, you know, just what you said, because when, when you identify something, uh, and this is the thing, right? This is like going to get a little philosophical here. But if, if you identify something and you put it into a set that, of something that it's like, um, it, it, it works in the sense that it's helpful to categorize, as we were saying before, because it, it compact, it compresses information down and allows us to like move through the world with the sense that we have some more information. But the truth is, we don't, we can't really ever say that we know the thing in itself, right? Yeah. In, in my view, I, I think you can't actually, like, I don't know what it's like to be, like, I, I can have pretty good assumption that you exist, right? I'm not a solipsist. But I, I do believe <laughs> that I can, no one will ever be able to understand truly what it is like for any other person to be. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You'll never uh, there see is out something... of another person's eyes. You'll never smell out That's of right. another person's nose. Yes. None of yeah. that. So when we think we can like have this sense of, um, I, I, I really push back against this idea that we can ever like truly, like we can categorize things and we can get closer to knowledge, but I, I reject that we can ever truly know another human, another life form in of themselves through their descriptive elements purely through an observable descriptive of like third party, um, like a scientific perspective, I yeah. guess. It's a reductionism on an intrinsic yes. level. Yes. It uh, it, it really, and uh, it's a problem of putting things in boxes. Yeah. It it not only dehumanizes individual aspects, but also if there are any outliers, instead of them being lauded and praised and brought out to the surface, that that person can manifest themselves and as and as and as ideal of the individual as they can. Instead, those aspects of individuality get suppressed they get pushed down by the collective and uh, they get seen as othered when in reality they can be absolutely wonderful things oh yeah yeah you know and and i think you know the one of my favorite examples of this is um um, a story of plato and diogenes when um, plato is talking that uh, a man is a a featherless biped and diogenes (laughs) uh takes a uh, uh, featherless chicken yeah, throws it at Plato, just chucks it, and says, "Behold, a man!" And then it's, just... <laughs> it's the you know, original it's... cynic. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's great. The fir- probably quite possibly one of the first based humans beings in history. Too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here's a question for you: Where do you find these fucking people? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with me, I, you, you're talking about the people I argue with on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and um, to be honest, sometimes they find me 
And sometimes I just see them replying to like one of my mutuals and I'm like, okay, I can't just let this happen. I have to jump in and correct these people. Um, so where, where they come from, I have no idea. And I don't even, <laughs> right. It, it also, you know, they kind of like in gutter somewhere. Right, exactly. And you know how I was just saying, you know, you can never really know someone, you know, it really brings into this concept of like philosophical zombies. Like I, mm-hmm. and this, this is touching into solipsism where it's like, you know, I don't know if they are actually thinking <laughs> I can, I, I only see them, you know, responding, but you know, you can only infer so much from that. Uh, but you know, you, you don't want to get stuck down that rabbit hole, but, um, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly something I feel a calling to where I feel like I have to, uh, it's like, okay, this person is wrong. And look, even if I can't correct them on what they're on, you know, what they're saying on Twitter, I can at least show people other people who might be observing from like, um, like a third party. I can at least yeah. show them why I think they're wrong. And maybe they've never heard the argument that I'm going to present as to why I think this person's wrong. And maybe I can help them there. Every once in a while, I see it happen where, you know, at the end of the argument, people are like, well, I guess I was wrong. Right. And, and that's always, the, the, it is rare, but when that almost makes it, you know, uh, more powerful when it oh, actually yeah. happens. It you makes, know what I mean? It makes the whole thing more worth it. Like Absolutely. I have that sometimes. It's, it's yeah. fucking beautiful. Oh, and, it and, is. You know, you know it, it also makes you want to do that more yourself. It makes right. you want to view yourself more as incorrect when you watch other people humble themselves yes. in front of uh, correct information. They right. drop the old bias and they pick up the new information and like, huh, right. I can't really dispute against this. And I mean, I think, you know, no one I don't think maybe with very few exceptions, I don't think anyone in today's society would be born an anarchist. You know what I mean? They might have anarchist intuitions, but they don't have like the foundational knowledge to like piece it together um, themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, or by, all by themselves anyway. And um, so I think, you know, if you're an anarchist, there's at one point you had to humble yourself to a radical degree and say, okay, I was lied to and I had I was working off completely wrong information here. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, you, you always want to be, you know, even if I feel like I'm, even if I feel like I have the correct information now, I never want to assume, presume that I'm always working off of correct information in every single way. And even if I am working off correct information, I could still be making an error like in midstream that could lead me to some wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. An error of judgment or an yep. error of bias or yes. you know, any number of things that could oh, yeah. definitely run in the way. I mean, it's, it's like a very complex subject. It's yes. Well, honestly, in my opinion, it's probably the most simple to get the correct answers out of. Yes. Uh, of any political ideology, because so many of these other ones, it's like, well, we want to add a little freedom here, but we want to take away a little freedom right. here because those individuals get a little too spicy for our wants. Yeah. The foundations of anarchism are actually so simple that you could explain it to children and they could like understand it. For, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it is under, you know, it's like one. So once you tell people that it's like, okay, all I really believe is that other people are not your property and that you should not treat them as your property. And then, you know, most people say, oh, yeah, sure, of course. But then, you know, it's the always the implications that trip people up because it's that one simple, like, proposition has profound implications. Yes. And if you, the more you apply it, the more broadly you apply it, the more profound those implications yes. become. Because it gets down to the point of, I mean, we we obviously had a new recent trend boost of abortion coming back again as a debate oh, yeah. subject. And that's always a, a real dicey one in anarchism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> depending on where you figure the line of birth begins. Right. 
Um, and we won't get into that here for obvious <laughs> reasons, but I'm pretty sure you and I are both basically on the same page. On that yeah. Subject. Yeah. If you saw my tweet interaction about this a couple weeks ago, uh, you, you probably know where I stand on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, if, if you know where, where my, uh, whole ideology comes from, you can yeah. pretty much divine that on me. Yep. Um, like for, for me, I grew up a Christian conservative, like mm-hmm. traditional, my dad's basically a rhino, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but he did grow up saying that the government was basically only meant for two things that are like shared in the Bible. That is the collection of taxes for public works only and the punishment of evildoers, mm-hmm. which of those, I mean, I would prefer it not to be done through a monopoly on violence, right? Um, obviously, but I don't mind there being punishment of those who commit evil. I don't mind there being roads. They don't hurt me. So I wouldn't be too broken up about that. But I mean, if I'm forced to out of my paycheck, which could go to feeding my family, um, that's a whole different story. And it, again, takes away from this aspect of the individual where the government doesn't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me because I live my life. I'm here. I'm now. I'm in the shit. I don't need, like, what? 5% 5% of my taxes of, of sorry of my income taken to go to schools and cops. Right. Cuz I'm not ever going to put my kids in a public school and I'm probably not ever going to call the cops unless someone literally dies. Right. So and you know it's funny too you uh, you brought up something that triggered one of my thoughts here is that um going back to like uh, individualism and like identity identifying something and how that can like um cause errors is like when people say the state exists for this reason or to do this, right? It's like, okay, why do you think that? You probably think that because someone told you that's what the state was there for, right? And that, mm-hmm. and you're just like kind of regurgitating it. But it's like, I think most people seem to think that these institutions have um, like intentional functions outside of the intent of users, Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where they think they're, it's almost like a platonic thing where they think it's just like it exists independent of uh, the user's own intentions and experiences. But it's like the state, of course, you know, um, exists to do what the intent, the intention of the people using the state do. Right. It's not yeah. it doesn't really have an intention outside of the people doing that. And of course, because of how the incentives are aligned, they're going to do very bad things. And to go back to the platonic sense, the, like, as if there is one perfect ideal state that has yes. its purposes and its and its thoughts. Right. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah. <laughs> it's just simply not the case. Uh, right. There's so many different different roles and aspects that the state has to it. And none of them can operate together without conflicting in multifarious ways because it's all run by a bunch of very different individuals. Yep. Um, And that's part of what the focus of my podcast generally tends to be is the nature of the antichrist, which I believe personally, just like the nature of Christ is within all of us, the ability to be either Christ or antichrist in our nature. Right. And that in my opinion, the state deriving its power from desire of control of aspects of life of people's uh, individual thoughts and their their monetary gain um, because it is such an accumulation of all of that from so many different people you end up with this amalgamation at the very top that is just the pure most almost the most pure manifestation of antichrist nature yes 
and and you know i think that's a really good analogy because you know um, we would uh, generally you know in, in most like uh, western religions especially christianity um I, I don't know if you accept this view but uh, evil is in some sense the privation of good right yeah like it, yeah. it's not an equal opposite force necessarily i know there's some people who do believe that uh but it, it's more Shadows of like the a privation cor- of light Right, exactly. It's a corruption of something that's good. And you can very much see that with the state is that the state um, is lit, uh, is a, a predator on production, right? That's a, in a very like economic analogy. It's a, it's a predator on things, on producers, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very easy one. And also just, you know, the concept of aggression itself. Um, to be an aggressor, it means you must uh, be aggressing against someone who is not already aggressing, meaning they must be in a state of non-aggression. So yes. aggression must always come after non-aggression. Um, uh, so non-aggression is primary in like a, a time span between the two, in a relational time span between the two. So you could very well, you know, it's I think it's very analogous to say that aggression in general um, is a privation in, of, of non-aggressors, right? It's a privation of peace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the only exception I can think of to that would be mutual aggression. Sure, but yes, yes. But I think even even then you could say that one person, at, out of those two aggressors, one person probably started it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The origin can some most of the time be from an individual. That's but, right, yeah. Um, if it ever goes beyond the individual, yeah, it's always one-sided. Yes. It's always one-sided in that, in that regard. Yeah. Well, at least in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. yeah, I wanted to make that clear. In the beginning, yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it does not necessarily have to remain in an aggressed or non-aggressed state over time, which is, I mean, that is one. Of one could the become the other purposes. over time too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, that is one of the purported purposes of governments to pad the differences between people to pad out the uh, aggressive feelings between people so that they don't fight but honestly i don't see where that happens in a state that can't simply be done by individuals talking to each other because that's all the state is doing it's giving people an organization to identify with where they can go then to do the thing that would right. be foreign relationship as a whole yes exactly and one of my actually you know speaking of that that brings up a good point one of my favorite examples of this is um um if people so the the common thing is that most people have this understanding that well uh peaceful cooperation with each other was could not be possible without the state right and they they just accept that is like a hard a hard rule but if you accept that then um, it actually destroys the argument because no people could have cooperated to create the state in the first place if that was exactly. true, right? Exactly. So y- when you think about these, when you think these things through, these propositions through, you quickly understand that okay, even if like the strongest claim we can make defeats itself in some sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's like we can obviously say that well, peaceful cooperation had to have preceded the state because if the state exists, someone had to at least with at least within the context of making a state, people had to peacefully cooperate to make the state. Anyone who refuses to accept that is implying that the state is a natural, uh, non-man-made, uh, platonic in being. some sense. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Platonic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we figured out already, only twenty minutes into this podcast now, that uh, the state is a platonic entity, not a real right. one. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't really exist as far as, you know, reality, uh, sorry, interactable reality is concerned. It doesn't have yes. a mind. It doesn't have a soul. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, it is quite literally the nature of the Antichrist uh, 
<laughs> given physical form, basically. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, that's o- so often why the individual, in the uh, the individuals within it become so corrupt so quickly. Oh, yeah. Even slight power can corrupt. Like, um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, at my old college, I used to be the event coordinator for our esports club. Mm -hmm. And um, this is how I met my fiance. She walked in one day and she signed up for the esports club and I thought she was cute. And I was the event coordinator. So I was sending her all the invites, the discord and stuff. And I just used my power. The fact (laughs) that I had my her phone number to just keep texting her. Like. I mean, even that little, like, be given an inch and you will take a mile. Right. Um, yeah. Given any control over another human being, you will take that control. Right. Whether you want to or not, because you're given the right, you're given the responsibility by the state. And if, if for example, that individual, whoever they were, whether it was my fiance or someone else, is like, hey, why are you continuing to text me? I didn't ask for this. This is weird. Um, if that happens and that, and you can't resolve that onto the individual level, that just comes down to, you know, you've given somebody who didn't deserve that power, power. And the fact that that position of power exists necessarily implies that that sort of loss of control has to exist. Right. Right. And, you know, um, speaking of that, it's, it's one of the critiques I I think I not that I struggle with the most in the sense I don't know how to answer it, but that it it annoys me the most is this critique (laughs) of like individuals anarchists that, you know, well, we just don't understand human nature. We just don't understand that, you know, there's always going to be people who are trying to rule and all this. Right. So it's on the contrary. (laughs) It's like, no, one of the best arguments for anarchism is the fact that people cannot be trusted with power. Actually. Exactly. Right. It's the fact that like, even if we accept, and I do, that there will always be people who will try to rule others, who will try to treat other people as a means to their ends, as their property. Um, even if we accept that, that we're, the, the anarchists would just say, well, we don't justify their rule because of that. Right. And it's that it's that minor difference, which is huge. Um, that is actually the separation between like all other political philosophies. Right. Because mm-hmm. you, I'll, I'll run into people who say, well, yeah. You know, I, I don't really like the state, but, you know, we can't get rid of it. It's like, OK, well, you know, we can't get rid of murder either, but I don't think we should like advocate that murder should be OK. You know what I mean? Or we shouldn't like, yeah, you know, exactly. think it's OK. So I, I, in some, I in some sense do think anarchism will always be like some Sisyphean struggle, but I don't think but I, you know, it's like, OK, well, we should always orient ourselves towards the good in all aspects that we can. Yes. And move from there. And one must imagine Sisyphus happy. That's right. Yes. Um, I forget where that quote comes from. It, it's but... uh, the myth of Sisyphus from Albert, uh, Albert Camus. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one of yeah, my favorite must, essays. That one must uh, view Sisyphus as happy in his act of constantly pushing the boulder up the hill because it is his meaning. And for us, our meaning is to embrace the individual. Uh, right. to to manifest ourselves as truly and fully as possible. That's and, right. And for me, how God made us to manifest ourselves, how God born us into manifesting ourselves. Mm-hmm, right. It, it's this very like, um, you know, virtue for virtue's sake type of mentality where it's like, yeah, maybe maybe we won't, you know, reach the um, the effects of this virtue or maybe we won't see, you know, the, the, um, the fruit of this virtue. But, you know, 
we're going to do the best we can right now and we're still going to you know try for it anyway because yes. you know the uh, otherwise we would just be like dead or we would be you know even worse than dead and accomplice to evil mm -hmm. in eastern philosophy you often see uh or not monks but uh mass like zen masters and buddhists who are on a higher level within the organization uh within the structure of the religion um they tend to be very staunch and straightforward in the manifestation of their personality despite mm -hmm. the fact that you know that tends to be as not uh, striving to be not an individual on a certain level um, but when pressed about this, the sort of argument against it is if these people stopped, let's say, smoking or drinking or having a girlfriend or whatever outside of the, the monastery, they would cease to manifest, basically. And you basically can't do that to a person. That is quite literally where mental illness comes from, is not being able to manifest who you really are. Mm -hmm, right. And, and it goes back to this deeper position on uh, collectivism and also solipsism on a certain level where yeah. you almost don't see yourself and by extension the self of others, like th that person, you know, another person's self-identity as real. When yes. in, in actuality, that is more real. It's, it's hyper real in compared to their... Uh, their individual manifestations in front of you, like like their hair color or their eyes or their individual identities, the personality and the way one manifests in that manner, manner is hyper real because yeah. that informs the way that the identity behaves. That informs the way that the uh, those aspects, those attributes get pushed out into the world and how they're portrayed. That's why you see people like Zuby who are super against this woke shit, but he's black and a rapper. <laughs> and, and a fitness right. guru like all at once and, yeah. and you don't you don't see that if you eliminate the individual um yes. there was a large study I, uh, I believe done in iceland where they basically or no it was um uh, sweden or norway one of one of the, one of those nordic countries anyway um they basically eliminated all on the books records or not records but um edicts and laws that pertain to men and women hiring practices and what they noticed isn't that the average spread became 50 50 between men and women for employment it became skewed towards the direction where each sex wanted to work in that field right nursing shot up to like 90 percent women 10 percent men same thing with doctors uh engineering jobs shot up to like 90 percent men and 10 percent women Right. Um, people become more different when yes. you allow them to embrace their individual. You want you want diversity, not equality. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When people always talk about, well, let's make you know, um, we you know, there's always this proposed. Well, if we just make things more equal between men and women, it'll be a fifty fifty split. But this assumes that men and women are like some hive mind, and they're all like striving towards a specific goal We're rather than one some race, the human race. That right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Right. So you, you kind of get if that's your like foundational starting point, you're going to get, like not be able to like appropriately um, integrate the, the what you just said, like these statistics into your worldview without like contradiction or without stake. So um, it's very important, like people start from a, um, a methodology where they understand the human like individual subjective value valuation of themselves and uh, to their relation to society in general. 
um, and you know the, the rest of the world essentially. Because if you don't have that, then you're going to have um, you're going to start thinking of human beings as just mechanistic tools. Mm-hmm. Like you you stop you stop looking at other human beings as ends in themselves, and you start looking at them as means to your ends and um, or or like or means to um like their means to like their group sense right and that's what you see with like collectivism in this group identity which is like um themselves as the individual does not matter to the group all that matters to the group is their means or their mechanistic process that furthers the group's identity in some sense right so -hmm. it's this very like um it's this very like conceptual bastardization um that that goes on where it's like you, you know the, the, you strip the person of all their human qualities and you just look at their utility, which is what they can bring you or the group or in, in whatever aspect. And it, it just creates this very dehumanizing um, um, creation because, you know, groups, um, groups themselves and culture, right? This is uh, always one of the big things that people talk about. So they'll talk about culture, culture, culture. And I don't mean to say that culture is not important, but I, I mean to um, emphasize that culture is the creation of individuals, right? Yes. And and even so, when we talk about culture, like even you know, people will say that well, you know, some people born after you know, culture is created and people are born. The culture affects the people who are born. Yes, this is true. Yeah, because human beings. Yeah, way. human beings mimic you know uh, what they see around them, right? Yeah, the culture around them. So, like for example, Japan, despite being very conservative, mm-hmm. is extremely collectivist. Yeah. To the point where they will ostracize individuals who have minor differences. Like, yes, there's uh, tales of young Japanese girls who have natural brown hair, completely normal, natural brown hair. And they will go to school and they will get sent to the principal's office for having brown hair instead of the natural black hair that most Asian people or most Japanese people have. Right. It's the same sort of sort of. almost anti it's so collectivist it's anti-individualist yes right so like when we're talking about like cultures in all around the world um we always have to understand that the culture had to start somewhere right you always have to bring people down from because people have this implicit like platonic worldview a lot in a lot of ways where it's just like this all they take these things for granted as if they just like spawned out of the ether uh, fully formed and it's like no someone some individual here started this right yes and even it, so even if it has some emergent property to it that no individual like intentionally created this um it was still spawned from individuals right um uh, friedrich hayek uh you know the austrian economist has this great example with like a, a walking he's using it in an economic sense but i think it applies even more generally to like culture and collectivism and individualism he has this analogy where it's like okay you have people walking down a trail, right? One person starts walking down a certain path and during his walk, he clears out some, you know, leaves or whatever during the path. Uh, the next person uh, who's walking down this path will see a path that looks more amenable to walking than any other place. So they start walking down the path too, right? Yes. Because uh, it was cleared by the last person. And then another per- and then that's going to clear even more things out of it. Yeah. And then over time, more people are going to go down this path. And over time, it's going to actually become a trail. Right. Yeah. It's going to become it's going to become more defined and more articulated um, through the individual action, individual actions, the, oh, sorry, the collective actions of all the individuals. Yes. So that's very important. Collective action of all individuals is not collectivism. That's something that's very uh, you have to like distinguish. Yes, so, absolutely. Because what's happening like is desire now, lines in uh, arch- architectural design. Yes. Very good. Very good analogy. So. 
when you understand that, you you can kind of view culture and interpersonal relationships in society the, in a very same way. And markets are, of course, like this as well, where the culture is created not intentionally. Well, there might be some intention at the start, but what the culture turns into is kind of the emergent property of all these people interacting in their own way with something that someone else did in some form of mimetic fashion. Um, so, so like with the trail example, right? the trail becomes a trail through the emergent property of each person, even if one person did not intentionally make the, make the trail, they might've made a pathway, but they didn't intentionally make the trail. Right. No one person intentionally did that. They trampled down some plants. That's right. Yes. So, and that's what we see with markets, of course. Right. Like markets are in a beautiful thing, like extremely beautiful because it, it takes the, it takes the um, desires and wants of every living person and turns them into information in the form of prices in relation to scarce resources and harmonizes them um, throughout the society at large. And this allows them to, this allows people to have implicit knowledge about things that they don't even understand, right? Well, that's what mm. prices are. So when you think of like yeah. prices, you have to think of them as like uh, transmits or packets of information. And the people have an um, implicit understanding of what's going on when they observe the prices, even if they don't, even if they don't at the time conceptualize of what that means, right? So when the price rises, and we can um, assume that something is more scarce, someone automatically understands that, or no, sorry, they don't automatically understand it. They don't understand that the resource might be scarce, but they still understand. They still are working in a way where them paying higher prices for that thing is going to incentivize someone else to then produce more. And all the people doing this for their own self-interest are never aware of the grander scheme at work here. Right. And that's what, that's ultimately what Adam Smith means by the invisible hand, right? It's this emergent property that comes from individual actions and individual actors working together towards something. And this unintentional thing is created through their intention. Yeah, and uh, you know we saw that recently, about a year ago, with uh, the absolute crazy amount of shortages for toilet yes. paper. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, you at first you saw a minor price hike, and then yeah. you just started seeing shelves be empty because people weren't going to overpay for toilet right. paper because it isn't that kind of commodity. Yes. <laughs> Emphasis on commode. Um, <laughs> Uh, sorry for the pun. That's what I do. No, no, it's good. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you see that that the, uh, the yeah the economy is absolutely affected by every single one of these, and it yeah. manifests psychologically in the individual, yes. even if they don't manifest it linguistically in their heads. Yes, and that is such a huge difference between collectivism and individualism. Is collectivism doesn't offer that that ability to view something as a purely psychological phenomenon without right. there being a linguist without there being a linguistic description behind it that's right yes it's because practically for, eliminated yeah for the because for the collectivist if you're just reducing things to parts in a mechanistic system they're going to like not want to acknowledge subjectivity or subjective experience from an individual because the group doesn't like subjectively experience anything it like mises has that great quote where it's like only the individual thinks, only the individual acts, right? And that's just true. Like, I, I don't see how there's any way to escape that. My um, favorite way of explaining that is exactly what I said earlier, where uh, the individual is the most granular level yes. of self-contained control. 
That's right. Yes. An individual is a subjective unit of experience and you can't like reduce it lower than that. Exactly. And you, so you ha- that's your automatic starting point like for um, experience, like, because when we want to understand something, we have to first, um, there's an implicit, bo- there's an implicit understanding that if we have to understand something, we must first experience it. And so then you have to, then you have to, t- uh, you know, tackle with experience. You have to understand, okay, well, what things experience other things? And once you understand that, then you then it leads you to okay. Individuals seem unless you want to take like some panpsychist view and you think that everything has some type of conscious experience. <laughs> but I I don't think we need to necessarily go there. Um, but it, I would love indiv- to go there. Okay, well we, we might be able to. Uh, <laughs> That's but, the um, sort of shit my podcast is about. Okay, well I for now I think that like the immediate assumption is we should assume that individuals are the the smallest subjects of experience and the only subjects of experience, in fact, um, at least interpersonally. Um, So when when we understand that, just, you know, uh, bolstering your point here a little bit, it's like you have to contend with, okay, other people also are experiencing things in the same way I am. And this kind of leads you into like some type of reciprocity where you think, okay, if I want to, uh, um, you know, uh, propose a norm, what what like claim could I make where um, I could propose this norm, uh, this way of acting towards people that is not universal? Like it, what I mean is like, how could one person propose a norm uh, that X people should do this and Y people should do this without understanding that, OK, these people are are the same as you in, in the aspect that they're each individuals. Right. So you can universalize. In the, in the way that says, okay, all these people are universal and that's not collective because each person is their own subjective experiencer, right? Because you, what, what, what the collectivism reduces is that they reduce the subjective's personal experience to nothing, right? They, they, only, they reduce them only to their mechanistic workings. So you can say, okay, this person, because he's like me, then he should be treated in a similar way as me do, doing a similar thing, right? So that's kind of the concept behind universal universality when you're talking about like proposing norms and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also very important. And I think collectivism um, just like throws that away and ignores yeah. it. Acts like it isn't even real. Right. When, when the most utilitarian per- part of the individual is the individual manifestation, not right. the identity, not your physical strength. It is your ability to think. It is your ability to reason. It is your yep. ability to come up with your own novel answers to questions and solutions to problems. It is your connections to others. It is on mm-hmm. all the way of those things, all the ways that those things have informed you and how you linguistically present yourself. These right. all bounce off of each other in, in a way that breaking somebody down into the individual parts that contribute to that absolutely just erases. Yes. Like, well, you know, I in can... the same way, in the same way that, you know, you can't just reduce the market down to uh, just like prices or things like that, or just yeah. like what people intend, what they think they're doing in the moment. So in the same way, right, your attributes could also produce something that's more than the attributes themselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In the form mm-hmm. of a person. In the same way, the market can produce unintended things that had nothing to do with the intentions of the buyers and sellers within the market. So it's really this concept of emergence. I think you, you have to think of the individual um, in, in relation to its components as an emergent phenomenon in some way. So one of my favorite things to talk about on this show, obviously, is people's 
religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you where you come from in that regard. Sure. Um, I So I was probably, uh, my family was not very religious. Like they, my family believed in God, but they weren't, they never like attended church or anything like that. And I, I, for a while, that's where I was. I did go through like an atheist phase, like when I was younger. Um, I would not consider myself an atheist now. And I know this is going to sound like a dodge, but it's more like <laughs> I just don't know. And it's I know there's different questions, right? I know it will. Well, the, the the question of agnosticism is like, well, um, a question of knowledge. Like, what do you like? What do you know? And of course, I think in some sense, it's like, well, I don't know, but that's a different question of what I believe. But I also don't believe what I don't. I don't know what I believe either. So. You know. So would you, you say you know, it's more of a, a probably an esoteric sort of idea where do you think the knowledge is attainable? I do think knowledge is attainable. Yes. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I, I respect the skeptics, uh, some of their arguments, but I don't, I don't buy into complete skepticism. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I do think knowledge can be attainable. Yes. Well, I mean like the specific knowledge of, of the divine there. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I thought you meant just in general. <laughs> um, um, Okay. I think it's possible. Yeah. I I certainly, so here's the thing, right? Um, So if you take just a purely scientific perspective about things that if you, the only way to discover knowledge is through third party observable testing of a certain, um, of a certain uh, um, thing in existence separate from human beings, right? Because Mm -hmm. the whole point of science is we want to reduce the subjective and we only want to focus on the objective. Yes. Um, I, there's some pitfalls there um, when you're trying to like prove like the divine because I actually think if, if the divine exists, it has to exist outside necessarily of the realm of um, physics in some sense. Not to say not to say it doesn't interrelate, but I would have to say that um, it has. So um, a good analogy of this is like uh, color, right? Yeah. So when we think of colors, we can't um, we can't really describe colors without knowing the color itself, right? Yeah. There's, we can't reduce them. It's an irreducible. Yes. So because it's irreducible, purple is purple. Purple is purple, and we can't like if you're a colorblind person, uh, you may know about like the like the um, some other attributes of the color. Like you may know what purple is on the right. You may know what. Oh, you are <laughs> colorblind. I, yes. Yes. Oh, okay. I have a deuteranomaly, which means I have the reduced ability to discern the difference between red and green. Oh, okay. I got you. Okay. Okay. So this, yeah, this analogy uh, is very apt then, I think. Um, so like with color, um, because we can't reduce it, like you may know, like, uh, for example, you might know what um, red and green is on the electromagnetic spectrum. You might know yeah. its physical properties in some sense, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there's something beyond the physical properties, I would argue, that you can't know if you can't observe, if you can't experience it. What so, Aristotle would have referred to as the qualia. That's right. The qualia. Yes, absolutely. So I do think so a lot. If you're just a pure materialist, I think you would reject the idea that you can experience something that is not in in its essence material or that you can gain knowledge of something that does not that cannot be known by material components being broken down. Um, so I would reject that. And I would say that the observation of a color is something you gain knowledge of and you can only know it by experiencing it. So I do think it is possible to just know something through experience. Um, and I know that doesn't sit well with people who would be completely um, um, purely scientific about things. Well, uh, but I think it's true. What I have true. to say to those people is uh, they're forgetting animals exist. Animals <laughs> yes. have their own experience. And they That's don't right. think of things in words 
or symbols or individual ideas at all, or at least not as far as we can tell. Yeah, as far as we can tell, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I it's also funny because it's like if you try to tell someone, and this is a good example, I think, to kind of like maybe break people's brains, try to imagine <laughs> a color that you can't see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So it's like you can't even know where to start there. Like you can't. So it, it's like, so color, I think, is a good example of this because you, you, it's so fundamental that people have an intuitive, intrinsic understanding of color if you're not colorblind, you know, um, um, or if you're not completely colorblind. Um, so when, when you talk about these things, it, it kind of gives you this perspective that's, okay, I only know this because I can directly experience it. So what other things can I experience that I can't prove that might also be true? Yeah, right? exactly. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of something from Futurama where mm-hmm. uh, Fry comes back to Amy and Leela in yeah. the in the uh, the place and says, uh, I just saw something incredibly cool, a uh, floating ball that lit up with every cor- color of the rainbow, plus some new ones that were so beautiful, I fell to my knees and cried. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's just, that's literally just an, an experience he's never experienced before from a color. Yeah. Yeah, and you and, can't like materially like reconstruct that. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's it's so different that uh, later on in the series, when Fry actually creates a new color that's never existed before, it, the whole rainbow is de- depicted in grayscale. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. It, it goes back to this sort of idea that there is an ineffable out. There isn't an ineffable out there, yes. and it is what you have yet to experience. Yeah, that's right. Young, yes. And everything is novel and beautiful and new. Um, it, everything is a new experience. So That's many right. things are new to you and everything is just mind blowing. It's a wonder children aren't stuck in awe constantly all right. the time. And yeah. you know, that kind of goes back to my mysticism um, within, within my own personal Christian experience. Um, by the way, to touch on my religious history, cause I don't know if you know, but um, I grew up a standard Christian Mm-hmm. standard normal you know regular evangelical free church christian um and i sort of fell into atheism a little bit mm-hmm. in my teenage years and then uh from there i got into drugs mm-hmm. and from there i got into psychedelics where i uh discovered through a bad trip that alan watts was very soothing oh and, yeah i've listened to so many of his lectures oh yeah I've, tens of hours dozens of hours hundreds anyway yeah. <laughs> um the uh his discussion of of the ineffable and his own difficulty in in reconciling his eastern beliefs with his christian beliefs um that actually helped me sort of narrow down how i feel religiously and mm-hmm. so when i nowadays i I don't do psychedelics as or drugs as much as i used to but when i do them i approach them from a view of i want to experience something i've never experienced for i want to have that closer connection with the divine i want it to be revealed to me and i want to have no inhibition towards it when it comes to me right and And, it's really a question of like fundamentals right because if you assert that everything is just reducible to smaller and smaller components you're, you're, there's an implicit belief that there's nothing fundamental, right? There is no, exactly. and this is not, this, I, I think like dovetails into collectivism too. Like, it's not like it's tangentially related. It's not, it doesn't imply it, but I think it's tangentially related at least yeah. where it's like, if you have a view that everything just breaks down to smaller and smaller components um, 
and there's no fundamental anywhere, um, then you're just going to look at things in a mechanistic process and a, like a mechanistic process going nowhere type thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's sort of like, yeah, you would just view people as, um, as you know means to your ends in some sense dominoes falling yeah. down whereas you know like with the color example it's like no i think colors are fundamental in the sense that they just are like they don't like you can't really break a color down into something smaller than itself as as a substance mm-hmm. and and you can actually see that manifesting in the the difference manifesting when you hear blind people try to yeah. describe colors that others have described to them over time like oh uh-huh. you don't know what red is red is like it's like this hot color so like yeah, you talk right. to a blind person and they'll be like oh yeah so red is hot blue is cool i don't know what red and blue are or what they mean but yeah they got right they got attributes yes exactly i guess <laughs> yeah and it goes back to this this whole center of experiential uh existence where yes if there is no experience, there practically is no existence. Yes, and that's a very um, Heideggerian point. Like Martin Heidegger, who wrote um, "Being in Time," it also talks about that. Where it's like, like the the so like you know we, we have Descartes' famous you know I think therefore I am. Um, Heidegger proposes something uh, more primary, which is I I uh, I am being therefore I am. I am experiencing therefore I am. Mm. Right. So you so before. Before even thought, you you're experiencing something. Yes, right? I like the, what Evil Descartes said. I don't oh. exactly think, therefore I ain't exactly. Bro, well, that's a good <laughs> that's a good one. I've never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, you know, there. So I do believe that there are like things you can, and I think I actually this I feel this really strongly because of the color example. Actually, I feel like there are things you can experience that you can't reduce down further than what they are. And I know yes. sometimes that can be uh, uncomfortable for people because it means that you don't, there's no real underlying reason for, for them in some sense. Right. Or at least that we can know there's no underlying reason. They just, they are what they are. Yes. Um, and that can lead people to be uncomfortable because people have this incessant urge to know why something is. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and I, so I feel, I understand why people get uncomfortable with that, but I think it's, it's, I do think there are fundamentals and, you know, uh, I don't think that they can be reduced down. So there's no why to be answered. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and this kind of goes back to, again, my, my religious perspective. Like, I don't know if you know about the different types of mysticism. But there's I, I know tangential. I know a little bit about, but I'm not, okay. I would not be as a, like knowledgeable as you. There's basically two different sides of the theosophist position here. Mm-hmm. There's the negative aspect and the positive aspect. Yeah. I consider myself in the negative aspect. Um, so the positive aspect would be like, this is knowable information. It exists and it is on just such a high level that it is unknowable to our feeble minds. Right. Whereas to, to me, as a negative theosophist, the, the whole idea behind it is that it is the holy other. It is the truly unknowable. It is the right. truly indescribable and indiscernible, like colors, like smells, like, like yeah, the qualia sounds the qualia of the experience these are not describable this no, they're not. is this is the they're, you can correlate to them like yes. you can, like, like, you, like people always try to do this like you can correlate like brain activity to something but that yeah. doesn't imply that the brain activity is the qualia that it exactly. is the same thing there's or that no it manifests the qualia or that it even manifests it yes correct and uh it goes back to this this whole how do I put it? This whole concept of of 
descriptionism, I guess you could call yes. it. This, this desire to... Identification, to you could call it. Yeah. <laughs> like what yeah, we were going, yeah, talking about before. Yeah. It's, it's like an obsession with, with the, the desire to put words on things when we don't live in a world of words. No. We live in a world of, I don't know, we live Experience. in a world of qualia. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. I mean, we can break down the qualia into their wavelengths and their yes. frequencies. And their but even that is just our, our attempt to identify something that we're observing first you know yes. what i mean even if you want so that's what i always tell people when they talk about well look we're we're talking about science and we're talking about all this stuff it's like okay what you're doing is you're putting a description on something you're able to observe consistently uh that's not necessarily truth it's helpful and i, I i'm not saying that it's not helpful because it certainly helps us compartmentalize information yeah but it's uh but uh, you should be very careful about assigning that thing is well this is true out even you know outside the system itself yeah. and i think that's very dangerous to a geologist there's no true such thing as sand there's simply <laughs> individual right. sand grains which are all their own tiny tiny rock right exactly yeah and none of them are alike right um, and you know and you know even going you know talking about like experience and things like this you know there really is no such thing as a triangle because a triangle is a two-dimensional thing and we live in a three-dimensional yeah. world and we can even gain knowledge from triangles uh, from you know like studying triangles even if they don't exist so that shows you that in some sense you can learn things from concepts that don't even match reality and you know that's also like mm -hmm. what mises talks about like the um the evenly rotating economy is does not actually exist but it's it's a precise um it's an abstraction that helps us like learn things from it and in, in physics you also have things like closed systems closed systems don't actually exist but yeah. you can still learn things from them uh, if we assume them if you want to make a closed system, you have to do so much. Yeah. <laughs> you have to do right. so much. And even then, it's not truly closed. No. You can make a fully enclosed uh, ecosystem in a jar with with mycorrhiza and plants and insects. Right. And it'll keep going, but it's still not a closed system because That's it's right. still living off the thermal properties of the earth. It's entropy off of and yeah, yeah entropy it's living off of the i mean eventually that glass is going to break down and even if you go into like the sub the substrate of like quantum mechanics and you like factor in like observe observation into things it's like there's you can't you can't have a closed system unless you have like no one experiencing anything at all and if you have no one experiencing anything at all can you even call that a system <laughs> exactly because who would be around to describe it as a system that's right yeah no one Exactly. No one. Yeah. That's who. You know, um <laughs> Checkmate AP Tits. <laughs> right. There's um you know, I, I, I forgot to touch on this earlier, uh, if we could like circle back to individualism yeah, too, because yeah, I, yeah. I I consider um things like uh virtue very important. And also people people will like criticize anarchists or like thin anarchists um uh, for like saying, Oh, you know, your society you just all you care about is like non aggression and all this. It's like no. Like non-aggression to me, like the principles of anarchism, that's the foundation, right? That's just the foundation. Like not, if you go through your life, like treat, like not aggressing against anyone, I don't think that makes you a good or virtuous person. It just not means you're all. not like a piece of shit. You know what I mean? It means you're not actively going out of your way to harm people physically. Yeah, it just means you're not a bad person. You, the, can you know, be, in some sense. I don't, I don't even think that because you okay, can yeah, be you could, harmless. 
That's, that's fair. But yeah. that's not a virtue. There's no virtue oh, right. in harmlessness. Because if you don't understand how to be a monster, you don't know how to avoid being a monster. That's right. Yes. And and also that's like a very the whole, Petersonian view, by the way. Yes. Yes. And also the whole um one of the uh things I would say about virtue is that often you'll hear people you also you often hear conservatives talk about this where it's like we have to enforce our virtues through the threat of violence. That's I would not argue a virtue. Yes, it's not a virtue. <laughs> I would argue you can't virtue for someone to be virtuous they have like it's a prerequisite they have to be able to choose not to be virtuous exactly. because that is what virtue means virtue is the act of doing something uh and you know if we let's assume virtue itself is irreducible so this is going to sound circular in some sense when i talking about but mm-hmm. virtue for virtue's sake or just virtue for um if you if you commit virtue or if you do something virtuous, you have done that when you had the ability not to do something. And that's what is makes it virtuous. Like if you were like um, the, the Christian commandment to love your neighbor, if yes. someone forced you to love your neighbor, well, for one, what, how could you describe that as love if it was forced? Right. Uh, because it's democracy and democracy good. Boom. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So when we're talking about virtues, we have to presume that, people have the choice not to be virtuous because if if you just force everyone to be virtuous i I guess maybe these people are assuming like outcomes like they're assuming that um if we just force people to be virtuous then we'll get virtuous outcomes but that seems only miss like a big part of what virtue is itself that's how you get they're trying to decouple virtue from individual action you know what i mean like free action that's how you get mental illness yeah right yes (laughs) yeah This is straight up. That's how you get mental illness. If you want to make sure that like every school has a school shooter within 50 years, you do that. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so and you, mm-hmm. go on. I, no, I was just saying, I think virtue is really important. And I think it's very important that people like live virtuous lives. And I think there's a lot, you know, I, I'm personally like a person who is like, I, I believe in virtue for virtue's sake, but there's also, you know, many like consequentialist benefits for that too. Oh, yeah. Living a virtuous life that uh, I don't you can think go back to the Petersonian ignored. view on it yeah. where uh, the, the virtue is simply you picking up the heaviest burden you can imagine picking yes. up and doing your best to achieve your highest goal in that. And if right. you don't succeed one day, you simply try to be better than you, you were the day before at succeeding at that goal. Exactly. Yes. It yeah, and, and going back to what we were yeah. saying, it's very much like a Sisyphean struggle where it's just like mm-hmm. you keep pushing the rock up the boulder and, you know, uh, the struggle towards the heights is like fills a man's soul, I think is Camus' quote. But it's like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it, 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 I think that's true. Where it, you, it, So virtue is very important, but you can't separate the individual from their action or from the consequences of their action. So if you're only looking at the consequences of the individual's actions, you're missing a whole component of virtue that I think um, um, it, like is the substrate of virtue itself. You have to have free action, free individual action for it. Yes. Um, yeah. And also, you know, I, I just like talking about individualism. It's like um, the, the concept of like the heroic individual, the person who makes the hard choice because mind you, groups don't suffer, right? All individuals suffer. Yes. And I think that's a very key point here because um, absolutely, it's the if, if individuals are the ones who suffer, and yet individuals are also the ones who choose to suffer to do the right thing, um, and you can you can conclude that that person is virtuous, but you cannot conclude that a group is virtuous, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. like the, a group having virtue uh, um, is in like 
I can't even conceptualize of what that would mean. Because I think for for someone to be virtuous or, or bravery, right? You can't have, yeah. you can't have, be brave if you don't experience fear, right? Yes, and there's exactly. a difference between being, you know, crippled by fear. Uh, but it, bravery is like, um, you have to be able to have some type of fear and move through it or move past it, overcome it's it. in the face of fear. As That's right. As opposed to a lack of fear. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Because a so, lack of fear is more like foolhardiness. That's right. Which is yeah. Not bravery. That's not bravery. Yeah. It's just like stupid, or you're not like processing that's, the that's environment correctly. That's like those correctly. people who jump into the polar bear exhibit, <laughs> right? Because they yes. think it, they think it'll be cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So like you just like, got a, put an apostrophe nt added to the last of you, to the end of your name. Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, it, it's absolutely correct because it's like. Um, you know, the, because individual, if individuals are the ones who suffer, then they're the ones who are going to be responsible for that bravery, not groups, right? So exactly. you could say, if you're going to talk about group bravery, you have to talk about uh, a grouping of individuals and not of a group itself. Because I think that's, because I think people get confused there, right? There's nothing wrong with saying that this group of individuals were brave. Uh, but yeah. if you say this group was brave, that's something else entirely. That's yeah. a different concept. You can um, make a group of the brave. That's right. You cannot call a group that is identified by something else as brave across the board. Right. There's just something different conceptually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there's, um, ha- have you read Huckleberry Finn? I have. Okay. Um, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to spoil it for the listeners, but you should have read, the listeners should have read it already by now. It's, it came out a long time ago. Probably have. Well, unless yeah. they're Zoomers. Right. So there's a moment, which I think is the ap- uh, apotheosis of like moral virtue in an individual in that book. And it's the moment where um, um, Huck is writing the letter uh, back to Jim's owner. And he's uh, um, and he's yes. going to like turn him in, right? He's going to like say so. So to give a little clarity here or preface this, um, it's a story of Huckleberry Finn and uh, an escaped slave Jim, and they have all these adventures, like going down a raft on the Mississippi River, right? That's that's the very like in a nutshell story. And they encounter all these um, adventures, and they form a relationship throughout the story. And eventually, Huck has been or Huck has been told all his life that. You know, if you set a slave free or if you, you steal someone's property, right, which is like the context because it's a very like um, time, uh, time piece of a story. Oh, yeah. If you like if you set, steal someone's property, you're going to be sent to hell. Right. And Huck's heard this all his life from society. He's heard all these things. And I think this is one of the most beautiful like moments in America in Western literature. Um, so after they've had all these adventures, Huck and Jim, um, Jim. Or sorry, Huck is feels so guilty. He feels so remorseful for like what he's done because he he genuinely thinks he's going to go to hell uh, for what he's done, and he's writing a, a note to Jim's owner, and he's about to tell her where she can like retrieve him uh, and like what happened and like he's apologizing, so he's about to essentially turn Jim in, mm-hmm. and he he holds the, he's holding the note. He writes a note and he's holding it in his hand. And he says, um, he holds in his hand and he's like shaking because he's like terrified. And he sa- he looks at the note and then he says, all right, then I'll go to hell. And then that's essentially like, to me, what, one of the most powerful moments of like individualism in American literature. It's like, this person is going to risk damnation for doing the right thing. Yeah. 
And you know what? That is absolutely the sort of thing that I mean when I say the nature of the Antichrist is in the collective. Yes. Yes. It is, it is in the collective desire to control the lives of others. And yes. Huckleberry Finn is a perfect perfect example of that it's a great book i so if anyone had has ever read huckleberry finn when they're real young i reckon and you've never read it since i recommend reading it again because like i feel like when when you're a kid you miss a lot of the like great subtext of the story uh because you're just not able to conceptualize at that level at that age so like i'm a big fan of like going back and reading like children's books in fact and pulling out like really great stories from um from those classics now I gotta go find a way to get some morals out of Goosey Goosey Gander. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's it, it's a beautiful story. I think it's it's one of the best moments ever because it's like you know, obviously Huck doesn't, obviously Huck would not go to hell for freeing for freeing Jim, but he he. The point is that he believes he will, and he does it anyway. And I think that's like the ultimate act of virtue, right? This idea that I'm going to do the right thing, even if it means I'm going to suffer eternally for it. It's it's bravery incarnate. Yes, exactly. It's bravery given a quite literal, an ultimate form. That's right, that yes. Despite the idea that one might quite literally suffer for eternity for their actions. That's right. You feel that there is a greater moral standard to be upheld here. That's right, yes. And yeah. that is a lot of what this collectivism forgets. Because people forget that this slave culture was an extremely collectivist culture. Oh, yes extremely collectivist it was it was an idea that you retain your property you go out mm -hmm. of your way to retain your property yeah there is a, a whole system of laws and oppression set up to help you retain your property and if your property is a person that applies to them to the point where the, if your slave was killed by the government the government would reimburse you right like it, it yeah it goes to such intense levels in the past and people forget the, how non-individualist the past was because individualism on a certain level was seen as like, oh, this person's just selfish and they don't want to get along with the rest yeah. of us. And individualism also breeds a certain amount of humility because like I, it, it would be wrong to conceive of an individual without understanding the limits of an individual's knowledge. Yes. Um, because, you know, you have to assume that, right, uh, you – at living at as a subjective a singular unit of experience in time um you are subject to social forces that claim to know things but you don't have any basis to like judge their knowledge from something else especially when you're very young or very yes. uninformed so it's always Absolutely. appropriate especially when you're like um when you're first growing up to assume that everything and this can be scary for people that may, what if everything I've ever been taught has been a lie, right? Because that, that's certainly, that can certainly be true. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, it's always good to like understand that. And uh, I think that is like an individual journey to understand that, okay, I'm going to step away from the tribe, my tribe I've grown up with all my life to maybe learn things on my own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you see this a lot with uh, people who get out of cults. Yeah, they have issues disconnecting from that extremely collectivist mentality. Yeah, and when you get out of the cult, some of them become extremely individualist to the point where they become somewhat corrupt, even. Yeah, and uh, then they pull themselves out of that and they become normal people. Like, um, there's a guy on YouTube, Telltale Atheist. 
Mm-hmm. He, uh, he he used to be a Jehovah's Witness. He got out of that cult real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time he was 18, he, he got shunned by his family, though. That takes some bravery. It does. It takes some fucking nards. Oh, it does, and, yeah. Um, he managed to get out, and I mean, I, I'm not really that into his content as a whole because he's kind of like a weird mm-hmm. little statist. But <laughs> I mean, I, I can appreciate someone getting out of a cult. And he oh, yeah. got into drugs afterwards, and then from getting into drugs, he found his virtues of, of being an individual and not having to do drugs because he finds right. meaning in raising his family and trying to be a good person and bring the word out about how awful the Jehovah's Witnesses are. Right. It's, it's this sort of – it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you have specific virtues or not. Are you being a better person than the person you were the day before? Right. Are you taking the biggest burden you can you can imagine handling, and are you embracing it like Sisyphus rolling his boulder yes. up, up the mountain? Yes. It, are you pushing yourself to be stronger than you were the day before, not just physically but mentally and emotionally? These are all questions we should all be asking ourselves. And I think um, the I want to like uh, just kind of circle back and like tie it tie this in a bow. Um, you know what we were talking about before about how there is individual intentional actions which can bring about certain ends but there's also emergent action that is not necessarily intentional but is a result of everyone's like every individual's collective action oh, and I, I think <laughs> you're right <laughs> i i think um i think sometimes people uh can try to like especially like anarchists can get really um um, annoyed that you know well it doesn't seem like we're do we're making any progress or it doesn't seem like we're making any headway and i understand the frustration i really really do i don't mean to come across as unsympathetic to that uh, mindset but I, I certainly think that you know if we're going to have anarchism it's probably going to look more like a market emergence than it is going to be a planned system from like some planner right because that's like mm-hmm. that's the whole point against central planning is that no one person can kind of like come up with the structure um so really in my view if i were to like give any type of advice to anarchists it would be like okay while being consistent with anarchists don't just be an anarchist just also be a good person right because it's one thing just to say that you know oh you know yeah like and i'm guilty of this too in the sense that look i really try to hammer home the the baseline like philosophical starting points to people but I, sometimes I can get the impression that people think that's all I believe in, right? Because I just do it so much. But it's like, no, you have to you have to go beyond just like acting as an anarchist. You have to also, you know, become a better person yourself. And look, you also have one life to live as an individual, and you should make the uh, make your life fulfilling and make the lives of other people fulfilling, right? If you yeah. can live a life where you just make uh, people, the, the people you care about or the people in your life just a little bit better, you've done more than most. Exactly. Exactly. Ace, thank you so much for hopping on. This thank you so much. This is this is one of my most... favorite podcasts I've ever recorded. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this has yeah. actually probably been the most intellectually stimulating episode I've had so far. This oh, thank you. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much. Let, why don't you tell the people for our end here? Because we got about five minutes left. Um, how about you tell the people where they can find you, what projects you're working on, and uh, mm-hmm. any special announcements you'd like to make? Sure. Well, um, I am Ace underscore Arcus on Twitter, 
And um, I would also like to plug my friend Greg's website again, because he doesn't get enough love here in the <laughs> plugs. Uh, so uh, my friend Greg, uh, 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 you've heard, if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard him on here before. Um, he um, owns a business, neofightgear.com. Yes. Um, and he sells like uh, he sells anything, everything from hot sauce, um, uh, weapon kits. Um, he sells uh, manuals, just anything you could need if you just want to start getting into like the very basics of like self-defense and things like that. Um, so if you can't, you know, purchase, you know, something more expensive on the store, buy his hot sauce. His hot sauce is great. I've had it. It's, it's fantastic and wonderful. So uh, I did want to plug that. And that um, would be episode six, Meek for the Week for the listeners. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um I would also say, um, this is, I don't think I've told anyone this year, but I'll go ahead and announce it now. I'm going to uh, be starting a Substack, So oh, I'm, yeah. I'll be posting on that uh, probably sometime next week. I don't know when this episode is going to release. So I, I just have to like uh, guesstimate oh, in the morning. it. Oh, okay. Oh, so, okay. So it'll be, yeah, okay. All right. Noon the day after the recording. I, okay, perfect. I, so I will probably in the next week or so, I will be launching a Substack, and I'll be talking about anything I want. So it's not going to just be anarchism, but it's it's going to be anarchism and other stuff probably. So, uh, and I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on. This is really one of the best podcasts I've ever recorded. <laughs> I seriously appreciate that. It, it is wonderful having you on. I love the, I love doing this podcast because I don't care what happens on it. I just want to mm-hmm. talk to cool people and have an interesting, mind-blowing dialogue that yeah. brings new information to the people who, who listen. Um, that's all I really care about personally. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Um, Absolutely. For everyone still listening. Um, this has been Awe. You can follow me on Twitter at OEUI dot live or underscore live. Sorry, not dot. Or you can follow the uh, podcast at at IHTA cast. You can check out the website at OEUI dot live. Um, that it'll be up early in the morning, um, you know, midnight tonight. Uh, I usually do an early preview um, only on the website. Um, kind of helps me funnel some, some funnel some people to my website instead of to their podcast platform. So that's nice. <laughs> but um, uh, the only announcement I really have is the same one from the episode with Felix, um, where I am hosting a Minecraft server now because I think it's funny and uh, it's not going to be modded by a 15 year old. So uh, if anybody wants to join the Minecraft server, feel free to DM me on Twitter or uh, message me on uh, the website. There's a contact box in the bottom corner. Um, But anyway, as our conclusion for the crimes of how how should I put this for the crimes of uh, forgetting the individual aspects of each part of its component cogs collectivism i declare you to be part of the body of the antichrist thank you everybody for listening and have a wonderful rest of your evening god bless you all